Accustomed to Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So we are continuing uh, through some of our histories and jumping back and forth between the, the two different versions of history um, that we're covering. And, and so this week, you've continued reading in First Kings and Second Chronicles. And we'll start with that First Kings section where um, Solomon's getting all ready to build this temple. Right. And so the, like the first thing we see him do is make a treaty with a Gentile, the king of Tyre, and get a lot of cedar, which is highly desired wood, yeah. um, and then yeah. use forced labor to bring it to Israel. Yeah, making this partnership with these Phoenicians um, may not turn out so well as the Phoenicians become a bit of a headache uh, as the story goes, but uh, that's we'll deal with that when we get there. Um, and, and Solomon drafted, in some ways, forced labor from all of Israel. Mm-hmm. They drafted, at least in this text, drafted a number of 30,000 men. We're going we're gonna to see it kind of get clarified. We're going to find out that these are uh, Canaanites that were still living in the land. Uh, but even by 1 Kings 12, the, the people, the, the, the Israelites come to Pharaoh feeling like the, the yoke has been too heavy on them. And so um, there's definitely this Pharaoh-like character, though, to Solomon here, where if if Pharaoh in Egypt was the one who conscripted uh, these foreigners to, to, to basically build the storehouses and things like that and the temples for, for, the, for Pharaoh, Solomon's kind of doing the same thing. And there is some provision around conquered peoples and, and the use of that, but... Um, at the same time, uh, there's 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 ways that these stories will be presented where it does seem like, hey, you're you're conscripting slaves in a way that Torah does not necessarily allow for. Right, and you know, on the bright side, we see that we see the favor of God on Israel and the fact that they have rest on every side. That's not because of Solomon; that's because of God. And we do hear Hiram, hopefully, with a genuine heart, worshiping Yahweh, worshiping the God of Israel. And so we see because of Solomon's wisdom um, and a lot of repetition of that word in this chapter or in this section, we see that the nations are blessing God, which is how God originally designed them. And we get a whole lot of specifics around the building of the temple, which I'm sure was riveting for everybody. But um, it's good to try to visualize and try to picture some of this. Uh, I'll include a link uh, in the show notes um, to um, something that that portrays uh, the tabernacle size versus the temple, Solomon's temple size. Um it's also going to include this Ezekiel temple that's more a vision of the temple. And then lastly, uh, Herod, so Jesus' time, the temple that, that ended up during Herod's time. Uh, so you're going to get kind of an understanding of just the size and scope of some of these construction projects. And so um, it, sometimes it's helpful, at least for me, to kind of picture, okay, what exactly is Solomon building here? How how grandiose or not is this thing? Um, and so, um, yeah, but there's a lot. Um, there's a lot there. And there's at times there's just nuance to how I read this. So like, we, we do hear the, the specifics around certain cut rocks and stones and masonry and stuff like that. When the tabernacle itself, like Paul or God was very specific going, hey, make this out of uncut rocks. Like it should be out of rocks cut by God himself in terms of nature, not by the hand of man. And yet the building of the temple, one of the first things we hear is like, we're building it out of cut stones that are built perfectly mm-hmm. to size. So um, there's, there's a little bit of there that I have tension around, but the center of this whole text is certainly um, this big chiasm around uh, this idea of if you obey, I will dwell with you. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I think about that with the central part, being about their hearts like God I mean despite all of the things they're doing to build this temple God wants the hearts and the faithfulness of Israel and you can kind of step back even and reflect on your own um how often do you live in the ought to rather than get to when it comes to practicing your faith God wants us to be like children um 
And he wants us to just out of an abundance of love for him, live lives of sacrifice. And so we see Solomon building the temple and maybe he's doing it because of a heart desire. Maybe he's doing it because of a promise to his father, um, David, but step back for a second and think about what it looks like to live as someone who doesn't just do things for God, but is, um, is compelled by love for God and all, all that you do. And then we get uh, a bit of an interjection from the narrator here where he starts, he starts talking about the temple and the building of the temple, but then he stops and goes, oh, by the way, Solomon also built his own house and it was much bigger. <laughs> and, and it's interesting that the narrator includes that there, the, this sort mm-hmm. of detail of, I mean, there's no reason to mention Solomon's house other than to kind of point out some nuance here. And, and if you remember back to David, David, um, the, the initial heart conviction of David of of wanting to build a house for the Lord was him looking around at his own house going, how dare I live in an extravagant place and God live in a tent? And yet we see the building of the temp- temple and then Solomon go out of his way to build a much nicer kind of place or a much more grandiose place. And so um, even, the, even the narrator saying that he used a costly this and a costly that and a costly this. And so um, there's some nuance to I think how it's not explicit in the narrator, but the choice to include this and some of the some of the language used uh, should lead us a little suspicious of Solomon doing this. Yeah, I think we've gotten a couple indicators that Solomon is not fully committed to the Lord, whether that's comments about who he takes for his wife or, yeah, what he's doing here and building his house. And I think we'll see the fallout of that later on. Yep, certainly. Um, and so the temple furnishings happen. Uh, there's another Hiram brought in. Apparently, he's really good at bronze and some gold work. And there's a ton of bronze in this building. Um, and so uh, it, it's all there. And the pieces of the tabernacle get included as well. And Solomon stashes a bunch of his dad's treasures in the, in the process. Yeah, so. we kind of see Solomon taking the general outline for the tabernacle and basically making it bigger and better. Yep. And, uh, and we get a mention of the date of this, uh, which I find pretty telling the feast that would have happened during this month uh, is really the feast of tabernacles. Now, if you remember what the feast symbolized, the feast of tabernacles, the purpose of the feast was for people to like, and, and if you drive by like Emory university or North Decatur right now, um, or in, during this feast, you would see like people set up these little booths out front of their house, these little like makeshift little dwellings. And, and the t- purpose of that holiday was to remind the people that they were, they wandered with God in the desert. It's like the mm-hmm. holiday to remember that their God is not confined to a place. And yet this is the holiday that they dedicate the temple to. Uh, and, and so there's, there's some, there's some uh, tension to that to me of, of them doing that on this holiday of all holidays um, in some ways, but um, yeah, but they do bring in the ark. Uh, it's missing a few items from the inside. We don't really know uh, where they got lost from, but uh, yeah, God certainly, consecrates the place. He certainly uh, puts his stamp of approval in some way else on the place by coming in, uh, the sort of uh, moving in as glory fills the temple moment. Yeah, I think it's meant to kind of harken back to the glory filling the tabernacle or even the spirit of God hovering over the waters like we read about in Genesis 1. But this idea of this new creation, this new chance to follow and obey God and live under his complete rule and reign. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, there's some language around God dwelling in darkness, but the word darkness also means sort of cloud. Uh, so, uh, some of the ways that's used in the, in the Torah is, is the cloud is also described as that's a darkness. Um, so, uh, yeah, don't freak out. That's like, well, is God light or is he dwell in darkness? And so, uh, just to clarify, but, um, yeah, Solomon recounts his dad's desire to build this temple. But once again, there's some creative retelling of the events of recounting, uh, as well, but, uh, he does build 
he does bless the temple in the process. Yeah, I think what stood out to me reading this passage is how many times Solomon uses the word I. I have built you a temple. I have built the house. I have provided a place for the ark. And he has made it about himself, which is so interesting because when David went to God and was like, I want to build you this thing, God basically was like, no, I'm going to build you something. I'm going to mm-hmm. build you a dynasty and a legacy within your household. We cannot outdo God and outgive God. And Solomon seems to be trying to take some some glory for um glory away from God, honestly, in the process of this. But at the same time, I mean, his prayer that we're going to move to in a second is really beautiful. Yeah. And and there's some acknowledgement, like, at least in Solomon, where there seems to be a question of like, well, will God really dwell in this house? And and, and Solomon rightfully goes, God's too big to just dwell right. in this house. And so, um, which is right. And and it's the hard part of interpreting Solomon because he has these moments where it's like, yeah, you're right. And this prayer of dedication is going to be this great prayer of dedication. But then there's other moments where you're like, but you also seem kind of questionable. And so, um, which once again, just keeps going with that idea of like, look, even, even at Israel's best king's they're still flawed and we need a better king. And so uh, we shouldn't just read Solomon as like, oh, this was the heyday. Uh, Solomon had a whole bunch of flaws, but he had these moments too, where it's like, but he still seemed to yearn or seems to want or um, had some sort of pursuing of God in the story too. Yeah. I mean, and that's like everything you just said right there is a picture of all of us. Like none of us are following God completely faithfully or completely obediently, but God is so gracious and good and that he works in and through us despite what we don't see or what we don't acknowledge or ways we don't surrender to him. So I think this, again, as we'll see throughout this whole story of reading the rest of Chronicles and Kings, is that we get to celebrate God and his faithfulness in the midst of a faithless people, which yeah. is exactly what we are. That does so much more what we should get out of some of these historic narratives yeah. of it's not how to how to be how to have the wisdom of Solomon. Right. It's not about that. It's about God being faithful to those of us that are inconsistent in our wisdom and struggle to to, to choose the right and the good over uh, over wrong and sin. So yeah. Um, yeah. So Solomon does pray this prayer of dedication. Has seven main sections that he sort of petitions God to listen in for them for, and that that if someone sins against our neighbor, that God would respond correctly, vindicate the righteous, judge the wicked. When Israel's defeated and and usually because of sin that that and it turns to God that God would listen. If there's a drought because of sin that God would listen. When there's all sorts of calamities and the people pray that God would listen. If the foreigner seeks God that God would listen. In war that God would listen. And when people have sinned uh, against God but confess, come return to him that he would listen. It's sort of the catch-all last category. Um, and all in all, they're great requests. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like, it's a great prayer by Solomon. I have, I have no qualms with exactly exactly what he says. Yeah. And we're continuing to see this theme of God blessing all people through Israel. It takes us back to that Genesis 12, three blessed to be a blessing. And Solomon kind of prays that, that as we are blessed, may we be a blessing to foreigners. Yeah. And so Solomon has his benediction. It's kind of closing. And, and honestly, I feel like chapter eight, uh, kind of knowing where the story goes is, is one of the highlights, if not the highlight of Solomon's life. Uh, and so, um, yeah, it's a good one though. And they yeah. offer sacrifices. They have a big old party. Right. Feasted, all that kind of stuff. And I just Solomon's prayer that all people of the earth might know that the Lord is God and there is no other. I just love that idea that he steps back and remembers or speaks aloud like this is what we live for and this is how we live. And so may our hearts even today be wholly true to God. And have that same prayer, echo that same thing. May the world around us know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. Let's live that way and let's believe that God's sovereign work is his best for us. Yeah. It just gets into, for me, a little bit with Solomon of what's the method to do that. And it seems at times Saul's method and something that um, 
I think is, is a common trait through most empires is look at, look at the grandioseness I built. Look at, look at this amazing yeah. temple as opposed to look at our God. And, yeah. and I understand the temple is a symbol of the God, but I think there's, there's some methodology to Solomon's mind of going, if I just build the greatest empire of Israel, then that's how God's name is going to go forth. And, and God's name went forth when they had a tent and they had nothing. So, um, I think I think Solomon's a little backwards on his methodology. The right motive, I think the wrong means. Yeah. But we'll deal with that as we go. Yeah, I think. Second Chronicles 2. Uh, so we're jumping forward in time, but to the stories we just basically read. With a um, stronger emphasis, I think, on the language of worshiping God and their plan to build the temple and less emphasis on the details. And yeah. I guess that kind of makes sense because we're reading this hundreds of years later. And, and as we'll note next week, too, a removal of a few stories, including mm-hmm. uh, Solomon's house. But um, yeah, we, we do find out that these workers are gare. That, that's the word used in Second Chronicles 2. And it's a word for a resident foreign. Um, so uh, it's essentially a naturalized citizen, someone who is converted to worship God of Israel. So if you think back, that's a that's a Ruth or a Rahab or one of those kind of characters. And so, um, yeah, this this is who Solomon conscripts, at least in this part of the story, for the labor. And so there's some questions. I don't think Torah allows for that, but um, he certainly does it. And so once again, we're starting to see some tendencies in Solomon uh, to 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 build this thing and any storehouses and other stuff too uh just like israel or just like egypt had and so uh, there's definitely some connections yeah it's interesting how applicable like the torah those first five books of the bible that we already read and studied is to this and so i find myself turning back to it pretty regularly to find uh what were the instructions around this and because it's just easy to read this and think like oh that's what god wanted him to do but then we read back to deuteronomy or whatever and we're like oh that's not actually what god wanted him to do but that's what he did yeah well, let's jump to, uh, back to Galatians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll finish up this book today. And so uh, there was a, as we enter this sort of conversation around sons and heirs and, and really these, these, these few chapters, one of the things that's just confusing and it's hard to parse out is where commentators try to deal with is like when Paul says us versus we versus you and stuff like that, who exactly are those audiences? And so um, it, there's a lot of debate. There's a lot of disagreement. Uh, there's still also a fair amount of agreed upon scholarship. So, um, yeah, but it's something to watch. It's like Paul's Paul referring to us as Jews versus y'all as Gentiles and things like that. But I think he's really comparing this idea of the heir, as we kind of covered at the end of last week, because I think chapter three leads into chapter four pretty well, that there was a time previously under the law that 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 the law functioned as this guardian, this 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 watch over watch that where they couldn't receive their inheritance yet. And so in a lot of ways they would be like slaves. And I think the, the idea of the slaves is the outsider, the one who didn't seem to have any sort of inheritance waiting on them. And, and now that Jesus was born uh, under the law, under that same guardian um, as the son of God, but he redeems us. What he does is uh, that inheritance was actually the nations themselves. And we, mm. we now as the slaves, as the outsiders, as those who ultimately had no inheritance are brought in as sons and daughters. And and this is that, that inheritance that, that we get to cry out, Abba father. And, and Paul's almost like, like that privilege of conversation with God, like that's, that's plain that you are not a slave, but you are a child. And if you're a child, you're an heir and you have 
access to the father. You have access to that inheritance. So that promise that was to Abraham, uh, to be for God to be his and, and him to be God or for, for God and him to have this sort of agreement and relationship of blessing and of nations and all that that's played out and that's the, the doors have been swung open for us to be called sons and daughters now. Yeah. The culmination here of that it's, I mean, this is kind of the culmination of the book. Well, there's maybe a few of them, but this is one of them. <laughs> I think of all of the analogies and metaphors God could have used to communicate our relationship to him. The fact that he chose sonship or childhood is it's just incredible. And, um, you know, think back on your past behaviors, think back on your family of origin, and we all carry brokenness within our families of origin, but as a believer, that is no longer who you are. You know, I'm an adopted parent, and so my children who I've adopted are now Pesquals. They live under our rules and our culture and um, are, are, are part of our family now, and that's how we are in God. That is how we are before Christ. And so pause for a second and remember whose child you are. You are God's child. You are um, co-heir with Christ. And don't don't just read it so academically or gloss over it. This is an amazing, amazing truth uh, that we will never fully probably grasp or understand, but try to sit in it for a little while, um, that God calls us his children. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Paul's concerned that they're forgetting this very fact. That um, he reminds them, look, you guys were Gentiles. You guys know what it was like in sort of this slavery over these non-God people that acted like they were gods, which in the Gentile world was plenty of people in power. And and Paul worried about how these this crowd under the pressure to like take on the law to go back to uh, some form of legalism. Um, are basically taking on another form of slavery again. And and he's reminding him, remember before, like I preached the gospel to you. I had some ailment. You took care of me. You showed me great hospitality. Like, but but these people have come in, like, and 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 have taught you this, and they're trying to divide you. They're trying to make these sort of exclusive claims as if uh, following the law is the only way. And Paul's like perplexed by them of like why? Like if the gospel itself is the the inclusive grace-filled gospel to invite you in, not by law, not by works and not by slavery, but by freedom, then why are you going back to the slavery mm-hmm. of the law? Why are you going back? Like He's like, I'm perplexed by this. This is struggling. I'm struggling to understand why you're doing this. So, yeah. I think receiving a free gift is hard for anyone. And a free gift is hard for us even to receive in our culture. But what's happening is that when people are going back to the law and trying to re-earn their salvation, they are cheapening God's incredible grace. And um, I think sometimes we can do this. We start to follow these Christian behaviors and think that we will, um, or maybe these practices out of trying to like earn God's favor. Like maybe God won't speak to me unless I read my Bible or tithe 10% or um, pray every day. And those are all things that we should do and we should practice as spiritual disciplines, but we cannot do it in such a superstitious way that believes that we are earning some sort of favor or salvation from God. But salvation is a free gift. And let's really be careful and reflect even in our own lives that we don't, that we don't cheapen it by trying to, to add something to that. Yeah, and and the 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 Israel has this sort of priesthood in the past, with the with the law that came from Moses, what well, that law and and the priesthood that that the nation was supposed to represent was to communicate part of who God was by His people, but we as sort of the new covenant people, these Gentile believers, we communicate something else by how we live too, and and it's ultimately under the freedom of the new covenant we communicate the kind of God we serve that. 
that includes Jew and Gentile and mm-hmm. slave and free and uh, uh, women and men that that by our very lives, we are t- to tell the story of a God who saves by grace and not by works. And so um, why? Paul's like, why would you go back to that? Like you're confusing things. You're, 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 you're not witnessing anymore to what the gospel actually is about. Yeah. And he deals with this uh, allegory. Well, first he starts off by saying, tell me, you who desire to live under the law, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Um, it's sort of this great burn, I think, from Paul right from the get-go. But but Paul uses the Sarah and Hagar story uh, allegorically in a way. It's like a template for them to understand. And I love how Paul does this because what he does is actually take the crowd of Judaizers, this crowd from Jerusalem who's trying to convince everybody they need to follow the Torah. Um, Paul's making them the Hagar in the story, uh, which they would not want to be uh, that character in the story. Uh, but he's sort of like, look, there was Sarah and there was a son that was a promise uh, and that had to be received by faith. And then there was Hagar and Abraham and Hagar tried to force the issue and have a baby by the flesh and not believing the promise, but trying to make it happen by by basically works, by, by the act, mm-hmm. by, by doing this one thing. And, and so Paul's sort of presenting those two arguments and saying like, look, like if you think justification comes like by just trying to make it happen, doing the work, doing these acts and not by faith, you're like the Hagar part of the story and you're not like the Sarah start Sarah part of the story. And so, um, and, and, and the Hagar part of the story represents Jerusalem, which is that much more indicting that this crowd came up from Jerusalem versus there's a, there's a greater Jerusalem. There's, there's a greater thing, um, that of, of God's, kingdom and citizenship that that's greater than just a city in this one place. And, um, and, and so that's sort of the, the, the argument Paul's making using the Abraham story already, which he's been doing this whole book and, and using this story to just be allegorical and be like, let me, let me show you why you don't understand the promise versus workspace. And so yeah, I just think it's so, it's so smart by him. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, he is, he's doing a great job arguing this, um, and I think we just need to hear over and over and over and over that salvation is free and yeah. it's for everyone. Yeah. And he set us free, which is what Ray goes to next. Yeah. Um, that we're not justified by any of the works we do, the laws we follow, any acts of righteousness that we might think justifies us. That's not how it works. So don't go back thinking that is how it works. That the message of the gospel is, is freedom from the law, invitation to all to be justified um, and not by works. And so um, if we, yeah. if we go back to it, we negate in some ways the whole thing. Right. Or you could, I mean, like you can act like a slave all you want, but it doesn't change the fact that when you're free, you're free. Right. Your behavior doesn't, doesn't, I guess, d- doesn't give you your identity any longer. So yeah. he's like, so don't act like a slave if you're not a slave anymore right. yeah. and use your freedom to love and to serve others. Yeah. And there's just some that are persuading you to do this. And I love Paul's, Paul's not missing words here. He's like, I wish they would go back and just circumcise the whole thing off. And, and I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty direct. I think he's doing a play on words too of, of, um, the sort of like, look, if they're not willing to understand that the Torah itself is taught justification by faith, then if they don't, if they don't even want to follow the Torah teaching on this, then they shouldn't even be considered a Jews. They should be cut off altogether, uh, which, which is that much more of an indictment on these people. And so, um, and, and so Paul's just reminding with that freedom in Christ, like, that's, that's amazing. But you also need to remember, like, your freedom is not just to do whatever you want. Um, you are set free, but go live it out in love for your neighbor, for others. And so um, he's going to start dealing with that as well. Yeah, I mean, the freedom, 
the freedom we have in Christ isn't a license to sin, but it's an opportunity to love and serve uh, through the power and the grace of God. And so as a Christian, don't just ride the wave of being secured eternally, uh, but then not turn around and, but then turn around, I guess, and live for yourself, but live to serve others. Because if we don't live as God commands and leads us out of that freedom, we're going to be abusing and misusing this gift of salvation. Yeah. And, and it's important to note sometimes when we say freedom, particularly here in America, we think like freedom to just choose whatever we want. That, that's like a freedom of, of future decision-making. Um, but uh, freedom, particularly in, in biblical context, is really this idea of freedom from things. Like you are set free from slavery. Um, and so that idea is is very different. And so, um, and, and I think what we're set free from, yeah, certainly law, but but I think even here, Paul starts to talk about the, the flesh and the desires of the flesh. Like you, you are set free from self. And so if you're set free from self, what are we set free to do then? And it is to, to start living towards others, both God and for others. And so I think that's what he gets to because I think the question is, okay, well, if we're set free from the law, how are we to walk all this out? And Paul's like, well, there's ways you're not supposed to walk it out. And he kind of gives us a list and it's about satisfying self in almost all those or, or sort of selfish reasons. And then, and then the other, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit include often in almost all of those, a, a other orientation. Um, so he already said, love your neighbor. He's already started talking about sort of the relational pieces of what it really looks like to live this out. And if you are somebody set free from the law, you are set free from living under all the confines of self and start denying self to live it out towards others. Yeah, it makes me wonder if kind of like Paul says everything like arguing against people following the law. And then he gets to this point and he starts to like think back to the Corinthian church who has taken their freedom in Christ, maybe to the extreme right. and is living out sin or self-fulfilling desires. And so he comes back and says, this is what it looks like. The moral requirements of the law don't change, but the motivation as followers of Christ and keeping them do. Uh, we no longer do these things to earn something or salvation, but we practice it because of our standing before Christ. And we are motivated by our love for God. So the fruit of the Spirit overflows from being one who's been adopted, one who is a child of God and not a slave. Um, we can't produce the fruit on our own, but we nope. can allow it to grow and flourish through living for God through the freedom we have in Christ. So again, just pause for a second and remember that our behavior and our actions as believers come from an overflow of our standing in Christ and who we are in Christ uh, rather than this sort of external obligation. Yep. And so um, included in that otherness is that we bear one another's burdens, that there's um, something about restoring those who have sinned, but Paul even says in gentleness and that we bear others' burdens, but he also sort of keeps it in check to go, okay, like, but also make sure like your, your heart, your motivation, your, the, the, the way you're bearing these burdens that, that you do so. Um, and I think he's tying it back to the fruit of the spirit. Like you do so in, in sort of the check to go, okay, am I doing this out of love? Am I doing this out of the right motivations? And that's the same thing that we've dealt, dealt with at first Corinthians 13. Like if I, if I'm even generous and sacrifice, but I don't have love, it's nothing. And mm -hmm. so I think Paul's reminding them like, have that heart check, have that, have that check on, on your own self uh, as part of you carrying other people's burdens too. Yeah. So he's like, okay, we're no longer requiring circumcision to be operating in the body of Christ. That's not okay. But you are a community and you are mm -hmm. all living under grace and you are all care for, care for one another and also guard and care for your own heart. Right. 
And then he finishes up uh, and he reminds them, look, this isn't about what you do. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. Those things don't matter. So it's not about certain markers or hoops you have to jump through in order to like prove your justification. It's not about who you might deem as the insiders versus the outsiders, all the ways that we so often draw lines. That's just not the gospel. And the only marker that matters by Paul being made into a new creation. That is the marker. And, and, and that's it. And so, yes, that becomes vaguer to sometimes define. It's not as clear as circumcision can be. It's not as, it's not as clean as certain things about the law, which is sometimes our tendency, our tendency of the law to follow the law, sometimes to, to justify ourselves, to make ourselves feel like, oh yeah, I'm actually a pretty good person. Or, um, I, I feel like God loves me because I did this, this, and this, or, or sometimes to judge others. So sometimes we use justification or the works to, to judge others and being like, well, they're a bad Christian because they don't do this, this, and this. And it's like, they're either a new creation or they're not. And that's, that's mm-hmm. our, that's our litmus test. And I think that's what Paul's really after, uh, in some of what he's arguing against here. Yeah. I like how he ends the book by calling them brothers. And I think it gives us hope that they're still part of God's family. And Paul, despite just a little while ago being like, maybe all of my ministry to you was in vain. He trusts his spirit to give them grace to be free rather than enslaved. And so um, Paul seems to always kind of at least end his books with hope, despite whatever the church is facing or going through, he trusts the Lord to lead and guide them. Yeah. And and in my final thoughts kind of on this book, like that whole idea of Paul even saying and referring to this crowd as brothers um, would have been uh, a bit not just a bit, it would have been pretty provocative and scandalous for their time. Um, because even the Gentiles weren't necessarily considered brothers in Jewish thought. And so, um, this idea that, that this, they have this one family, everybody's co-heirs of the provinces of Abraham. Um, that, that was at this point in history and the unpacking of the church, like this letter comes at a, like it's novel to unpack all that Paul unpacks here, that um, the, this little family that God partnered with in the in sort of the 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 blessing of the world work that God was going to do through Abraham, through his offspring, the 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 work of redeeming this world to showcase who He is, that that to bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth in some ways, that God's work through this little family that's kind of continued on to a slightly larger family now has been opened in a way that works against tribalism, regional religions, all that kind of stuff. But, but it's by faith and faith alone, not about your lineage, not about your position, none of those things that all would be kind of heirs to God's restoration work in the world uh, to be reconciled to God um, and, and sons and daughters like that was a, such a revolutionary move mm-hmm. um, that that is true of what Jesus did, uh, but but in terms of like unpacking theologically, like this is just such a huge movement forward in understanding exactly what the gospel is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what stood out to me the most was uh, the idea that the visible far- parts of our faith are not a checklist, but they are a natural result of a life of faith, and. Uh, I wish I I wish I had a better analogy or any kind of analogy to describe it, but I think our life of faith and the difficult things we do, like prioritizing others above ourselves, isn't a should, but a get to. I think sometimes we overcomplicate what it looks like to live out our faith, but when we understand that we are God's adopted children, when we are heirs of the kingdom, we are going to live differently and naturally produce the fruit of that kingdom. And so know who you are in Christ. Dwell in being beloved. Dwell in being adopted. Dwell in being saved by grace. And out of that will overflow a life that brings great honor to God. Yeah. 
All right, we had a few Psalms this week as well. Uh, Psalm 113, which I think even has a good tie into to the Galatians sections that we mm-hmm. read where there's a barren mother who was given a family. There's those who are on the outside, kind of poor and wretched who are invited to the table. Um, and so whether that's the, the idea of the Gentiles being invited to the table and to the family, um, there, there's sort of all these pictures and, and God fulfilling his promises in this story. Yeah, I like the idea of God being defined in the psalm as both great and gracious. I think oftentimes in our world, we have great people uh, with tremendous influence who rarely offer grace or consideration to others. And then we have really gracious people who are often ignored and neglected. But here we serve a God who is great and he is gracious. Yeah, that's so good. Psalm 4, uh, which traditionally has sort of a chiastic um, makeup. So there's a center that, that I think the, the author is after, and that center is the, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself, and the Lord hears when I call to him. And so, yeah, the, the author's like, look, sinners have victories, sure, but what matters is those who call out to the Lord. He hears us. Yeah, and I think this is kind of a messianic psalm in the fact that, like, we can all pray this song because of Christ. And so we know because of Christ that God hears us when we call to him because we are considered righteous before God through the work of Christ. And so what a great prayer for us to pray on this side of the cross and understanding. And then Psalm 126, that God is good and he follows through on his promises. He restores his people. Just as Solomon prayed, like, hey, God, listen listen when we turn back to you. And the psalmist is saying, like, God does that. And as part of this Hillel, uh, um, all, all these Psalms that start with hallelujah, that would be kind of sung and, and together as a package almost. Uh, this is in that section as well. Yeah. And I think it's just what a great gift to pray, knowing that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We know what our inheritance will look like and we know what our king is like. And so we can sing God has done great things for us and we are filled with joy because we know what's to come. Yep. So next week, what should we look at for the old and new? So Old Testament, look at Solomon's prayers. I think there's a lot to learn from the structure of what he prays and what he focuses on them. Um, And I would encourage you to take some time and write your own prayer uh, to God in a similar structure to how Solomon prayed. Uh, And then the New Testament, I would just pay attention to the different kind of paradoxes we read about in 2 Corinthians. There's a lot about the upside down kingdom of God and the gospel, like power and weakness, light and dark, etc. So pay attention to that as you start 2 Corinthians. Yeah, for me, uh, in the Old Testament, so we're going to look at Second uh, Chronicles, and or in Chronicles, it's deca- de- the the dedication of the temple. Now, imagine you're a post-exile Israelite. You have already seen and heard from your prophets that the temple was destroyed, that God left the temple in some ways, um, all that kind of stuff, and yet you're you're here hearing Solomon dedicate this temple that had been destroyed and God had left in some way. So how are you hearing Solomon's words? What is there an eye roll? Is there a, some cynicism towards it? Is it hopeful that they're going to rebuild and everything's going to be fine? Uh, just think about that as you read through that. And then new Testament. Yeah. We're starting second Corinthians. I would encourage you to watch the Bible project. I think second Corinthians is one of the harder books in terms of outline. Um, and I think they do a good, pretty good job with it. Um, and in the way that just Paul Bill's arguments kind of more complicated in the sections in these sections. And so uh, there's definitely three big ones, but there's kind of this mishmash within them. Uh, also, um, even more specifically, like Paul's this week is going to start talking about suffering. And so think about the idea of suffering and Paul's unpacking of that theology and how it compares sometimes with how we think about suffering in most of our context, particularly here uh, in a more comfortable kind of world. And so um, I think at times we have weak theology on suffering and, and Paul's definitely spent some time trying to unpack that. That's it for this week. Thanks everybody. Thanks y'all. Thanks y'all.